Um, all right, well, we are uh, starting a new sermon series today, and if we haven't met, I do imagine there's a lot of visitors today. Nothing gets people coming to church like babies on stage. Like, people just want to see kids on stage, and so they come out of the woodwork. So if you are a visitor, uh, we're really grateful to have you. My name's C.T. Eldridge, the campus pastor here at Woodside Royal Oak, and we are starting a new sermon series in Matthew chapter 18. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, uh, the New Testament starts about three-quarters of the way through. The last book of the Old Testament is the prophecy of Malachi, and then it's the gospel of Matthew. Mark, Luke, and John are next. If you see those, you've gone too far. Matthew chapter 18 is where we are this morning. And we're doing this sermon series we've titled Conflicted. Um, And it's because we want to address what the Bible has to say about conflict resolution. Do you know that amongst the people of God, there is tension and conflict even sometimes amongst us? If you've been in the church for about five seconds, you may have picked up on that. Um, There can be relational strain even amongst the people of God, sometimes especially amongst the people of God. Um, But God has spoken to it, and so we want to offer this instruction through our preaching ministry. Um, Also, uh, because we are living in what so many have referred to as a cancel culture. And so what's happened over the last several years is there's been a huge emphasis on accountability in relationships and I would say even judgment for the way people treat one another, especially in certain types of relationships. Um, And there's good to that. There does need to be accountability. Uh, There does need to be truth told about the way that relationships have happened in different contexts. At the same time, uh, along with truth and accountability, there is grace and forgiveness. And so through this chapter, we want to wrestle with the tension between those two things and what God has to say to us about them. Um, So as we get started, I want to zoom out on all of Matthew's gospel, zoom in a little more on all of Matthew 18, and then we'll dive into our specific verses today, verses 1 through 6. So zooming all the way out on Matthew's gospel, sort of an overview of all of Matthew's gospel. It is made up of five different, what are often called discourses, five different uninterrupted teachings of Jesus, where he's just going on and on and on. It's red letters after red letters, unbroken teaching from Jesus. The first big chunk is the most famous one. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Um, And really what Jesus is teaching is on how to live in his kingdom, how to live out the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's the first discourse. Then a few chapters of activity from Jesus, and he starts teaching again in Matthew chapter 10. This one's often referred to as the missionary discourse because it's the chunk of teaching Jesus offers his disciples right before he sends them out two by two to proclaim the kingdom. So I'm calling that one a discourse on spreading the kingdom. And then there's a couple chapters of activity. Then we come to Matthew chapter 13, and that's a full chapter of parables. Jesus over and over um, envisioning what the kingdom of heaven is like. He shares these different parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. He's speaking to the imagination of the disciples to help them understand the kingdom. Once more, there's a couple chapters of activity. Then we come to Matthew chapter 18. And at this point, Jesus is going to teach on relating within the kingdom how disciples are to treat one another, how disciples are to work through conflict amongst other disciples. 
And um, looking at this chapter, um, breaking it down a little bit in half, it's really based on, um, you could say in one sense, a verse from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, Jesus famously says, um, before you judge your brother, first take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of his eye. So before you judge your brother, judge yourself. Before you try to take the speck out of his eye, whatever sin, whatever struggle he has, take the log out of your own eye. And that's really the way that Matthew chapter 18 breaks down. The first four verses is Jesus making us look at ourselves, um, which really stinks, you know. Whenever you're, whenever you're dealing with relational conflict, it's about them and what they did, and they're the problem. And Jesus does what so many counselors do, which is make us start with ourselves. So the first 14 verses are what that's about. Jesus making us look in the mirror, not just making us look at the person we're having an issue with. And then in verse 14, he, uh, then in verse 15, he does get into the nitty-gritty um, specific instruction on how to address when our brother sins against us. So that's the way these first few messages are going to break down on verses 1 through 14, and then we'll get into a couple of messages on verses 15 through 35. This morning, we're starting in the first six verses. I'll read them for us, and then we'll dive in. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And Jesus, calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of the disciples, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Nolan Ryan Express, Randy Big Unit Johnson, Roger Rocket Clemens. These are three of the most dominating and aggressive pitchers in Major League Baseball history. Nolan Ryan is well known for his explosive fastball, which legend has it, hit 107 miles per hour. Randy Johnson is famous for his insane slider, which broke several feet across the plate and proved almost impossible for batters to hit. And Roger Clemens, he too was known as a power pitcher who simply threw the ball as hard as he could and often threw the ball right at opposing pitchers in order to intimidate them. And these few guys are typical of what all the other big league pitchers are trying to do. You want to have high velocity and you want to have a high spin rate so that you either blow the ball past the opposing batter or you confuse the batter with how much the ball breaks. But either way, it takes power, it takes strength, it takes maximum effort to achieve that high rate of velocity or to achieve that spin rate. That's what all big league pitchers are trying to do. Almost. 
all of them. Because one of the most peculiar things in all of sports is the knuckleball pitcher. So Tim Wakefield and more recently R.A. Dickey are two of the more well-known knuckleballers. And these pitchers essentially do the exact opposite of all the other guys. Most pitchers want the highest speed possible for their pitchers, pitches, but knuckleballers throw the ball with minimum speed as possible to get the ball across the plate. And most pitchers, as I said, they want a high spin rate on their pitches, but knuckleballers want literally no spin on their pitches. A perfectly pitched knuckleball does not rotate at all as it's flying from the pitcher's mound to the batter's box. So conventional wisdom for successful pitching is high speed and high spin rate, but there's actually a way to be really successful doing just the opposite with the lowest speed and zero spin rate. It's almost like the way to success is failure. The way to try your best is to barely try. So the knuckleball is this weird paradox. It's a, it's a seeming contradiction. It's a reminder that things are not always as they seem. Well, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven often makes me think about the knuckleball because Jesus' teaching challenges the status quo. His teaching challenges our conventional wisdom. There's an irony to it that is often a head-scratcher, like what in the world is he talking about? And today's passage is no different. Now, we don't know exactly why, but the disciples ask Jesus in verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So perhaps they ask him this because Jesus has just been predicting that he will soon die and return to his Father in heaven. And so since he's soon leaving, they're all now wondering, who's going to replace you? Who's going to be the greatest one representing the kingdom of heaven on earth? Who's going to be the greatest disciple? Perhaps it's that situation that's making them ask this question. But either way, for whatever reason it's on their mind, they ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is, pun intended, about to throw him a curveball. He's going to state a paradox, something almost contradictory that challenges the status quo. True greatness, he's going to say. True greatness is not always what it seems. Great ones are not great. Little ones are great. In other words, Jesus says, if you want the status of being great in the kingdom of heaven, then you need to lose all status on earth. If you want to be ranked high in heaven, then you need to be ranked last on earth. We're also saying it this way, in Jesus' kingdom, greatness is defined by humility. Jesus uses that word in verse 4, whoever humbles himself... And humility is also rightly defined as lowliness. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, if you want to be high and lifted up, then you need to get low. You need to get humbled. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is warning the Philippian believers about what he calls, quote, selfish ambition. And that's exactly what Jesus is attacking here. You see, the disciples, they're envisioning Jesus almost as a horse race. 
where the riders are jockeying for position and rank and the status of being first, of being the greatest. Paul says that is selfish ambition. And in its place, Jesus says we need lowliness. That's true greatness. And remember, Jesus is bringing all this up in the context of this discourse on relationships in the kingdom. And it's because he knows sinful, selfish ambition kills community. So if we are out to prove ourselves, if we are out to show ourselves off, to show off how spiritual we are, to show off how theologically smart we are, to show ourselves off in whatever way, then we are going to divide this church. Because in your selfish ambition, trying to prop yourself up, you're necessarily putting others down. You're necessarily pushing others away because you're trying to separate yourself as better. Again, it's this mindset that sees fellow disciples as competition, not comrades. So how does Jesus address this specifically? How does he flesh out humility? First, he's going to say, Pursue dependence instead of power. Pursue dependence instead of power. So the disciples ask Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus responds with an object lesson. Instead of first saying anything, first he calls to stand in the midst of them a child. Now, we don't know anything about this child. We don't know their name. We don't know their gender even. We know nothing about this child, and that's kind of the point. The symbol of power and status in the kingdom of heaven is this nameless, needy, humble child. And then in verse 3, Jesus speaks to the disciples. He says, "'Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So these are some sober, hard-hitting words that Jesus speaks here. First, he uses this attention-grabbing phrase, truly I say to you. So he doesn't just say what he's going to say. Instead, he first adds this, truly I say to you. In other words, like, listen up. I'm not kidding around. I'm speaking the truth. And then he continues, unless you turn and become like children. So by telling them to turn, Jesus is implying that they're going the wrong way. You ever been in the car when you turn the wrong way down a one-way street? Once you realize you've done this, there's an urgency to turn around, to get off that street before you get in a head-on collision. Well, Jesus says to these disciples with some urgency, turn around. Your pursuit of status, your pursuit of greatness is going the wrong way on a one-way road. And he says that if you don't turn, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, whoa, these are high stakes here. These guys want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, but they're actually in danger of not even entering the kingdom of heaven. So again, these are sober, hard-hitting words. Jesus is not playing around here. This is a critical issue. And notice he doesn't just tell them to turn. He tells them where to turn to. He says, unless you turn and become like children. 
So that's the way towards entrance in the kingdom of heaven, by turning from our selfish pursuit of status and becoming like a child. So the symbol for status and power in the kingdom of heaven is this child, and that's because children are statusless, children are powerless. You think of it, what child holds any position of rank in our society? School principals, city mayors, chief executives, business owners, police chiefs, church pastors, none of them children. Children have no prestigious titles. They have no high-ranking positions. Their status is they're just kids. And what kind of power do children have? Not physical power. I arm-wrestled my 8- and 10-year-old this week. <laughs> I beat the first one, I beat the second one, and then I beat both of them together. <laughs> it's not physical power that they have. It's not intellectual power that they have. You can trick a child very easily. They're naive. No, instead, children are the epitome of dependence and neediness, especially when they're first born. Can't feed themselves, can't change themselves, can't speak for themselves. Their only defense mechanism is that they're cute. <laughs> They've got no other superpowers. And Jesus says here, unless you turn... And become like that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be great in the kingdom of heaven. But, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child, he will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what? To earthly ears, this is just knuckleball nonsense. In order to make a name for yourself, you need to become nameless. In order to climb the rankings, you need to lose all status. This just does not make sense if you don't have ears to hear. But that's the call of the gospel. Pursue childlike dependence instead of power. So both my favorite book and my favorite um, novel exemplify, I'm sorry, my, my favorite book and my favorite movie both exemplify the power of this truth that Jesus is teaching here. So my favorite book or novel series is Harry Potter. And this story is about an epic battle between good and evil. So the dark Lord who leads the forces of evil, he is he who must not be named, Lord Voldemort. And Voldemort has terrorized the world of wizards he is obsessed with power and does whatever it takes to accumulate as much power as he can, but standing in the way of Voldemort's power-hungry, violent rage is a baby. So there aren't many illustrations in the books, but this is from the first page of the first book. That's little baby Harry wrapped in swaddling cloths, laying on the Dursley's doorstep, and this is who stopped the maniacal, tyrannical, supercharged Voldemort. A powerless, vulnerable, needy baby. You got to read the books to find out how. Don't watch the movies. Don't watch the movies. Read the book. Another example of this truth from my favorite movie. Of course, I'm talking about fellow Alabamian Forrest Gump. 
Now, for most of the movie, Forrest is not a child, but because of his mental deficiencies, Forrest is essentially a perpetual child. He has an IQ of a third to a fifth grader for his whole life. And yet, he is a Medal of Honor recipient. He is an all-American football player. He is a successful shrimp boat business owner. He is one of the original investors in Apple computers. So this childlike man who is so unassuming, he is so selfless, he accomplishes more than you and I could ever dream of. He is elevated like you could never imagine. In the wizard world, a baby is the epitome of power. And in the world of Forrest Gump, it is the childlike who are exalted, who are great. And it's not too different in the kingdom of heaven. Church, unless you turn from your selfishness, unless you turn from your rivalries, unless you turn from your power grabbing, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles themselves, they will be called great in God's kingdom. So if we are going to be a community that reconciles with one another and doesn't just cancel one another, then we must embrace this truth. The way up is down. The last will be first. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The meek will inherit the earth. It's not about titles. It's not about status. It's not about control. It's about neediness, dependence, and humility. So I want you to think about your brothers and sisters in this church. See them in your mind's eye. Their faces, their voices, their presence, the ones in your life group, the ones you serve with, the ones you live with, maybe. Do you see them more as your competition or as your comrades? Do you find value and worth when you outdo them or when you serve them? when you pray for them, when you love them. You see, this mindset of humility is the foundation of our unity. If we grow self-important, then we will grow apart. If we grow self-centered, then we will grow apart. If we grow self-assured, self-reliant, then we will grow apart as a church. Selfish ambition kills community. And so instead, like our Lord says, pursue childlike dependence, not power. What does humility look like? How does Jesus flesh this out? Second, practice loving care instead of introducing temptation. Practice loving care instead of introducing temptation. So Jesus continues his instruction here, picking back up in verse 5. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So Jesus seems to be saying the way we show we have childlike humility is by receiving children. When we welcome and love and value those who have no status, then we show that we're not concerned about status. 
when we give our time and attention to those who have no power, then we show that we're not concerned about power. And this is remarkable. Jesus says, when you receive such children, then you receive me. In other words, Jesus is identifying with the lowly. Jesus says, when you love the lowly, you love me because those are my people. Those are my kind of people, the lowly. Then he continues in verse 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Okay, so let's pause for a second. It seems that Jesus shifts from talking about how we treat literal children to now talking about how we treat other believers because he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. So yes, he is advocating that we welcome and love all literal children, but now in verse 6, he's referring to believers as children. So Jesus is also saying that we should welcome other believers into our lives. We should receive them. We should not cause them to sin, he says. So the idea seems to be that if we do not welcome other believers into our lives, then we may cause them to sin. We may cause them to be bitter towards us. We may cause them to miss the chance to grow with us if we don't welcome them, thus leading them into sin. And Jesus then once more has very sober words. End of verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but having a millstone tied around your neck and being tossed out to sea sounds pretty bad. And for reference, here's an image of a millstone... That big circular stone there with a log coming out of it, an ox would be tied to that log and then walk in a circle, thus rolling that giant stone over a grain so that it can be used for making bread. Having one of those stones tied around your neck is not conducive to staying afloat. Not sure if you guys have taken swim lessons yet, but this is a bad situation Jesus describes here. And yet, it will be worse for you if you cause another believer to sin. Because, you see, in the same way that parents are protective of their children, Jesus is protective of His little ones. He is protective of His people. And if you are the agent of causing other people here to sin, then you would be better off tied to a millstone at the bottom of the sea. We can be an influence in one another's lives, pointing each other to grace and truth. You and I can be an influence in one another's lives, pointing each other to grace and truth, or we can be an influence in one another's lives, pointing each other to sin and error. And if you are in the latter group, then Jesus is going to hold you accountable in severe fashion. Again, more severe than being drowned at sea tied to a millstone. So Jesus is not playing around here. He is drawing a line in the sand. He's drawing a boundary around his people. And he's saying, if you are going to be a toxic, poisonous presence among my people, then you are not going to be amongst my people. So is there a place here at this church for weak Christians? Yes. 
Is there a place here at this church for immaturing, immature, but growing Christians? Yes. Is there a place here at this church for struggling, hurting, broken people? Yes, I hope so, because half the time I show up here with my soul tied together with a loose shoestring. But hear me, as welcoming as this place is, hear me and hear Jesus, there is no place here for people who want to introduce sin. If you are here to take advantage of someone, if you are here to get your hands on someone's money, if you are here to get your hands on someone's body, Jesus is warning you right now. It is going to be worse off for you than being tied to a millstone at the bottom of the sea. And so if you've showed up at this church with wicked intentions to take advantage of people and lead them into sin, then I order you right now in the name of Jesus to repent. Confess your sin to the Lord, confess your sin to somebody else, and pray to Jesus that He would change your heart. Yes, praise God, Jesus is Savior, but He is also a judge who will judge the living and the dead, every last one of us. And yes, praise God, Jesus is gentle and lowly, but He is also holy and righteous. He will accept you in your brokenness, praise God. Jesus will accept you in your brokenness, but He will not allow you to lead His people into sin and not answer for it. Jesus is a protective shepherd, and we are His sheep. Jesus is a watchful big brother, and we are His children. Jesus is a jealous lover, and we are His bride, so He will not let us be corrupted and it not go answered for. Practice loving care, welcoming one another, receiving one another, not introducing temptation. You know, I said earlier that the symbol of humility, at least in this passage, the symbol of humility is a child, and that's certainly true. Children have little status, little power, and are completely needy and dependent. They are an appropriate symbol of humility and weakness that we are to live out as disciples of Christ. But I would say the ultimate symbol of humility is the cross of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the chosen one, the holy one, the prophesied one. And yet He laid aside all that status. Jesus laid aside all that rank. He took the form of a servant and humbled Himself, even to death, death on a cross. And He did it all to reconcile us with Himself. He did it all to bring us back into relationship with our Creator God. And now He is calling us to be a reconciling community. He is calling us to embody the gospel by loving one another, promoting unity, and pursuing reconciliation. But that starts with us looking at ourselves. Before we can take the speck of sin out of our brother's eye, we must first take the plank out of our own eye. 
the plank of selfish ambition, the plank of arrogance, the plank of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Church, let's humble ourselves before the cross and let's humble ourselves before one another. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's Word together, and I will pray for us. Our Father in heaven, God, we are grateful this morning to see all these beautiful, squirmy, crying, wriggling little babies all over this room. We praise you, God, for the way you have fearfully and wonderfully crafted each one of these little ones. You are the creator, God. You are the life-giving God. We thank you. Father, we pray that for each one of these children and for every children that is amongst this church body, we pray that they would have a joyful experience learning the gospel, being loved, growing in community with friends. Father, we pray they would be safe. We pray they would feel free here, free to be themselves, free to share honestly, free to have fun. We pray, God, for however long you would keep these families here. May their children prosper. May they remember this place. May decades from now, these children remember Woodside Royal Oak as a place of joy, as a place of grace. So bless them, Father, we pray. God, these words are sober this morning. These words are hard-hitting this morning. And I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would hit us as hard as we need to be hit. Humble this church, God. May we not presume. May we hear the word of Christ with all of its power, with all of its strength, with all of its sobriety. May we humble ourselves before your glorious throne. And may we humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters. Work in us the mind of Christ who laid aside all of his glory and served us. Make us that kind of community so that Royal Oak and the surrounding communities could not just hear from us the gospel, but they could see it, the witness of a reconciling community. God, only you can do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Our culture is not going to teach us how to do this. Many of our family experiences did not teach us how to do this. And so we pray by the power of the gospel, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would instruct us as your people to learn how to live with grace and truth. In Jesus' name we ask and we continue to worship. Amen. Amen. Amen.